Hi, and welcome to Worldly on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Alex Ward and Jen Williams. So this week we are talking about a massive, huge escalation in Trump's trade war with China. The president has announced tariffs that would target about half of all imports, and there are hints that it could get even worse. We're going to dig deep on the hows and the whys behind this crazy-sounding policy. Alex, what is the deal with the tariffs in my best Jerry Seinfeld voice? What's the deal? So Trump is angry with China for its trade practices, so he wants to place $200 billion worth of tariffs on goods. That would add to the $50 billion beforehand, so it's effectively a tariff on half of all Chinese imports. That would make it harder for China to sell in the United States. And China, of course, is unhappy with this. So it's retaliating by saying it's going to place $60 billion worth of tariffs on American imports. And what's worse about that is Trump has said, well, if China is going to retaliate that way, then we may add another $267 billion worth of imports on China, which means that basically every product that China wants to send to the United States will be tariffed in some way. Okay, that seems bad, right, Jen? Right. So Trump has framed this as we're going to be getting a ton of money and China's going to be paying us a ton of money. But that's not actually how this works. So just to be clear on how tariffs actually work, it's essentially like a border tax, right, for importing these goods. So it's American consumers who actually end up paying more. And that's something that I think a lot of people don't really understand. It's not that China has to pay more to get their goods in here. It's that American consumers have to pay more to buy Chinese-made products. And we're talking about consumers, including not just like me and you going to Walmart or Target, but also like manufacturers who are buying like large manufacturing goods like steel and, and parts and stuff to make things. So it's essentially a tax on the goods that Americans are buying. And the idea is by doing that, that Americans will stop buying the Chinese products and we'll start buying, ideally, American-made products. Now, the precise mechanism is that the tax is paid by companies that are doing the right. importing, right? right? And then right. they subsequently increase the exactly. price of whatever goods they're importing on the consumers to to make up for the losses that they get from the import tax. So exactly. it's a tax on American companies that gets passed on to the consumer. It's right. Consumers probably won't see price increases for a little bit of time. There's a bit of lag time between the tariffs and the price of, of goods. Right. But – the general consensus among economists, and, and not just like a few, like everybody, is that this will lead to somewhat significant increases Absolutely. for you, me, everybody else in the United States who buys stuff, which is to say everybody. Right. There's a really good quote um, from the, the radio program Marketplace. This woman named Julia Hughes, she's the president of the United States Fashion Industry Association, so a trade group that represents fashion industry. My favorite association. Absolutely. And she told the host, Kai Rizdahl, you know, absolutely, there are other places that companies can source. The problem is that there's no place that every company can go source. Huh. So, you know, there aren't a lot of places that can replace China. Right. So she's explaining that, you know, this is going to hit American companies because a lot of companies from everything like the fashion industry to, you know, all kinds of manufacturing rely on these goods from China to make their products. And so in the short term, like the crunch really hits American companies. OK, so all of this seems dumb, right? And, and I don't mean that in the sense of like, you know, no one's thought about this, but it just seems like nobody benefits from it, right? It, there's no advantage to the United States. Obviously, it's bad for China. So from that point of view, Alex, why would, why would they do this, right? You just did a ton of reporting, talking to people inside the administration about what they're thinking here. And it seems to me, or it seems to me from reading your reporting, that the aim isn't to actually benefit the U.S. economy, at least principally. There's a more subtle game going on here. 
Right. The Trump administration would disagree with you, Zach, in the sense that, look, China has been uh, stealing our intellectual property. They are, their labor is cheaper and therefore jobs go from the United States to China, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so in effect, China has been already waging a trade war against the United States. But that, this is not the way to fix that kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like that doesn't seem like it would be directly solved by tariffs at all. Well, right. So, But the way the, the Trump administration wants to fight back is effectively by crashing China's economy. So the way they've thought about it is twofold. One, by imposing these tariffs, yes, some jobs may come back to the United States, right, especially in the steel industry. But effectively, the two goals are to, one, remove China from the center of the global supply chain. We'll explain that in a second. And two, to make it so multinational companies either leave China because the cost of doing business is too high or and or to deter multinational companies. These are like Apple's, Google's and other countries' companies from doing work in China. So basically, we're hurting American consumers to help them in the long run, is their thinking. Right. So the whole argument. So by crashing China's economy, we want them to act more responsibly in global economics. So just one way that, that the US wants to fight back on China is to make sure that when American companies enter the Chinese market, that China doesn't force, let's say, Google to give up a lot of its own proprietary technology, which is copyrighted. In theory, this kind of crash, or at least all these tariffs, will deter China from doing that, making it easier for our companies to go into China to work and leveling the playing field. So this kind of aggressive attack on the Chinese economy is not the overall approach of past administrations, right? This isn't normal. Right. And, you know, as Alex wrote really well in his great piece on Vox, it's really hard to kind of overstate how different an approach Trump and his administration is taking compared to past administrations. So before, the idea was to push China here and there on like little areas because it's not just economic issues that we have. That's one of the biggest ones. But there's also things like trying to push China to improve its human rights record and other things like that and to behave itself in different ways in the international arena in terms of like military and things like that. So the way the administrations before from, you know, Clinton, George W. Bush, Obama, pretty much, you know, regardless of, of which administration in recent decades, has been to try to engage China, right, to work with them. The idea was that by working with them, you could maybe have a better relationship and then you can then push them be like, hey, maybe you could stop rounding up Muslims in parts of China and putting them in hmm. concentration camps. The Trump administration does not seem to be talking about that. Right. Things like that. And the idea was that, like, look, essentially China is vital to our economy, because, again, like Alex mentioned, the global supply chain, when we talk about that, like a lot of the components that we use in regular products from your iPhone to your shoelaces to kind of pretty much everything in your life, almost all of it involves at least one component that is probably made in China. So when we talk about the global supply chain, like removing China from that process would be a massive disruption to the global economy and to the U.S. economy. So the kind of previous idea was, well, we don't want to do that. So we'll just kind of work with them and basically accept their bad behavior and try to push where we can and get at least a little bit of movement where we can. The Trump administration has completely thrown that out the window. And it's like, nah, fuck you. China has been screwing us over for so long. We're going to push them till either they break or they come to the table and start playing ball. And like, that's what bugs me about this approach. Not bugs. It makes me almost kind of angry, right? Like it's a burn the village to save it strategy burn the U.S. economy to save it in this long-run thing in a way that I don't think even is likely to work, right? Does anyone who's knowledgeable about China outside of the Trump administration think this is the way to do it? No. In fact, one expert told me that like the, the U.S. has found the right 
problem, but instituted the wrong remedy. I'm paraphrasing. That's effectively the quote. And to be fair to the Trump administration, a bunch of policy experts and even people in the U.S. government before Trump came to office had worried about this problem, saying that the U.S. had just kind of neglected the economic issue for too long because of the engagement strategy, right? We'll focus on a few things, but we really won't be pushing back on China. So there was a movement within the government, within the policy, China policy community to say, hey, we need to do something about it. None of them would have recommended this all or nothing approach. But the people who are in the administration, you know, Peter Navarro, a trade advisor, trade representative Robert Lighthizer, Steve Bannon, when he was in, they all advocated for this kind of approach. And obviously Bannon's out, but Lighthizer and Navarro are still in. Right. And Matt Iglesias uh, from our sister podcast, The Weeds, and also from Vox, obviously, did a, a really good explanation of this that you included in the piece. Just basically, like, even the economists, so the economists that you mentioned who are in the Trump administration have made this argument that this will actually help grow the U.S. economy and, and improve our economic outlook over the longer term. But Matt Iglesias points out that it's not actually, if you look at the math, right, if you look at how this works, that's not actually true. And I think he called it, and I'm paraphrasing, an error that you could make in freshman level economic, you know, macroeconomics 101. And you'd think that the kind of serious economic policy analysts and professionals who are in the Trump administration would understand that. But essentially, the argument is that because you're cutting off imports, essentially, and making them more expensive, you're going to hurt the U.S. economy and shrink the U.S. economy. So by that metric, like our trade deficit, right, which is the the difference between what we export to China versus what China exports to us, like that'll shrink, right, because fewer imports are coming in from China. But so is the U.S. economy, right? So you're shrinking the trade deficit, which is this big thing everyone talks about as a big problem. But you're also doing that by shrinking the U.S. economy, which is not necessarily what I would think is the best idea. Right. And most other economists agree. But let's not forget how Peter Navarro got to the White House, right? Trump wanted a China trade advisor. Jared Kushner went to Amazon, found that the first book on China and trade was written by Peter Navarro and hired him. Are you serious? Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's true. Yeah, that's I true. did not know that. That is wild. Yeah. Uh, so what's now, that's not to say that there aren't, there are very serious Asia economists and China specialists in the government, in the White House. But this whole policy proposal, the Navarro, Lighthizer, Bannon approach, that seems to have won. And Trump was always amenable to it because he's been wanting tariffs and calling for it for so long. Navarro is, uh, to use an academic term, a kook in the economics profession. Virtually nobody thinks that his view of trade is correct, that's not represented in mainstream economic journals. There's not very good empirical evidence to support it. But... It fits with the president's longstanding view, and it's important here to emphasize that Trump has, for 30-odd years, been complaining about uh, Asian economies taking American jobs and competing with us. Back in the 80s, he paid the New York Times to publish an advertisement in which he railed against imports from Japan. Right. Now, that back then, people were really worried about Japan as an economic competitor, and that's not the case anymore. Now everybody's worried about China, and Trump has just transplanted his 1980s view of Japan to China and is doing what he always said he would do. Like, this really is the president just finding people who agree with him and making policy. And I think, you know, it's important beyond just the the kind of short-term economic piece of this that is probably necessarily not going to work. Um, the broader strategy doesn't seem like it's going to work, right? Right. So w China, of course, has bristled at all of this. 
Now, obviously, China has always complained that the U.S. was trying to curb its rise. So they're never going to be happy with what America does. But in this specific case, based on the trade stuff, I mean, China's been trying to talk with the U.S. to make some sort of trade deal. And twice they've made some sort of agreement. It went to Trump and Trump declined it. So China at this point feels that the U.S. really doesn't want to make a deal, that this is all sort of a, a dog and pony show to for this longer-term strategy, and it's led to two... The longer-term strategy being destroying de- China. Destroy <laughs> China. Uh, and so uh, naturally, China has kind of reacted in two ways. One, thinking, yes, the U.S. is quite seriously trying to curb our rise, or two, trying to lead to the dissolution of the ruling Chinese Communist Party, neither of which gives diplomats or bureaucrats within China any incentive whatsoever to work kindly with the United States, either now and possibly in the long run. And right, it's important to, to point out, too, that... Beijing can just kind of wait out the Trump administration, right? I mean, we have elections every four years and sometimes change presidents every four years, usually every eight years. If Trump wins re-election, you're the longest time he could be another six years. But that's not how it works in China. Like, they have a ruling Communist Party that's been in power for decades. And President Xi Jinping of China, by all accounts, is probably going to be the ruler of China For the foreseeable future for the rest of his life. Until he dies. Right. And he's not that old. So they can essentially sit back and go, you know what? We have no incentive to cooperate. They're trying to destroy us. Screw it. Let's just sit back. We'll put more tariffs on them. We'll fight. And we'll just wait them out. And then we'll deal with the next administration. So the Chinese government can do that. But before we close, I want to emphasize that we can talk about this in bloodless terms, right? We can talk about this in terms of economic statistics. We can talk about it in terms of, uh, you know, great power conflict. But the people who are most likely to be hurt by these policies aren't, aren't even Americans. It's the Chinese poor and middle class. Like this is a country that in large part due to its connections to the international economy rising since the 1980s has lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. Extreme poverty has plummeted as a result of gains to the Chinese economy, largely fueled by its ability to manufacture stuff and export it. And now with the United States declaring economic war on China, right, that that may or may not succeed at its own terms that we all think it's unlikely. But what it is likely, maybe certain to do, is to set back the world's fight against global poverty. And that means tangible consequences for thousands, potentially millions of people in China who rely on access to the global market to evade really extreme pain and suffering. So I, I, I don't want to lose track of how significant this is for real people's lives. These people aren't just pawns in Trump's geopolitical game, right? They're humans. After the break, we're going to talk about one of the more interesting moments from Trump's press conference with the Polish president. Would you buy a T-shirt for $50 if you knew it only cost seven to make? I definitely would not. And with Everlane, you do not have to overpay for quality clothes. They make premium essentials with really nice materials without the crazy markups. They tell you how much the things cost, so you know that you're getting it for a reasonable price. Uh, They're very transparent about each step in their process. They even work with ethical factories and will specify that to you. And because they sell directly to you, they're 30 to 50% lower in price than traditional retail clothing. Their clothes, they look great, they cost less, and they last for a while, unlike some casual fashion that you can get. Their essentials, like the Cotton Crew t-shirt, they're exactly what they need to be. Simple, stylish, and made from quality materials. 
Right now, you can check out our personalized collection at everlane.com worldly. Plus, you'll get free shipping on your first order. That's everlane.com worldly. everlane.com worldly. Hello, I'm Ravi Gurumathy. And I am Grant Gordon, and we are your co-hosts of a new weekly podcast called Displaced from Box Media and the International Rescue Committee, where Ravi and I work. Right now, we're seeing the biggest refugee crisis since World War II, the biggest number of people displaced because of conflict. You've seen it in the headlines about Syria or Yemen or Jordan. If you want to understand why that is and what can be done about it, listen to Displaced. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this podcast. For elsewhere this week, we're going to Poland. Its president, Andrzej Duda, recently met with Trump at the White House. And afterwards, they had a pretty wild press conference. Jen, what was the highlight? At the press conference, Poland's president basically reiterated his desire for the U.S. to build a permanent military base in Poland. And specifically, he said, quote, I would very much like for us to set up a permanent base in Poland, which we would call Fort Trump. Oh, my God. Fort Trump. Dun, dun, so and Trump is actually now considering building that base, right? Yeah. Uh, look, it's something Poland's wanted for a long time. They've they've offered two billion dollars uh, for it. They're worried about Russia. I get that. But like, man, what a ploy. To get the U.S. to sign off on it, to basically to Trump's face be like, look, we'll name it after you, man. Obviously, Poland doesn't have the rights to do that, but like, it's a great sort of suggestion because you can imagine Trump now in the Oval Office being like, I approve this and it better be named after me. And right, so in the part where they'll pay for it, right? That's my other favorite part. It's yeah. like Trump is obsessed with U.S. Loves allies yeah. not paying for things and Poland preemptively offering to be like, we will build your Fort Trump. It, as far as negotiating, it's a diplomatic masterstroke. But like, let's let's not put the cart before the horse, right? Why is Poland so interested in getting a U.S. military base? Right. I didn't want to skip over that that point that Alex mentioned. That you know, yeah, Poland is worried about Russia. Yes, exactly. Right. So Poland, for a long time, has worried about a possible Russian incursion. They have understandable reason to be concerned about that. Russia's done a little bit of that lately. Yeah. Uh, you know, Russia invaded Ukraine, seized. Crimea, this isn't completely, you know, out of nowhere. It, it's it's reasonable. But this would be a huge fucking deal, right? Like putting a permanent U.S. military base. Now we have troops there, but a, establishing a permanent U.S. military base would be a massive fuck you to Russia. And Russia and also our NATO allies would be super pissed off by this. So I mean, uh, so some NATO allies wouldn't be happy with it because they don't want to antagonize Russia unnecessarily. It over-militarizes the continent. But well, others but, would be but others would be happy with it. There's another reason America's allies might be upset, which is that Poland is is in the process of dismantling its own democracy. Right. So Poland's ruling law and justice party uh, has been attacking the independence of the courts undermining the ability of opposition parties to compete. They're in trouble with EU as a result of this. And so for Trump to build a base there would essentially be declaring, we don't really care about your record of human rights and democracy. We're going to reward you with something you've wanted for a long time that NATO allies are already iffy about, right? It would be a, a big controversy. Right. And to be clear, I'm not saying that NATO allies oppose the possible building of a base. What they don't want is Trump and the U.S. just unilaterally going in there and doing that without consulting other NATO allies. And the reason is that 
the U.S. is way the hell over here across an ocean. But our NATO allies are right there. So if, you know, they're like, okay, well, if we're going to do this, if we're going to take this big step that's really going to poke Russia in the eye and, you know, we're like poking the Russian bear, right, and and seeing if it'll attack, um, we should probably discuss this first to make sure that we're all on board with doing this because we're the ones who are going to experience the most direct consequences because we have, like, you know— gas pipelines with Russia and things like that, economic ties that they could cut off if they get mad, and they're probably going to get really mad. So that's what NATO is concerned about, not the actual base itself. So this is part of a broader pattern of foreign leaders appealing to Trump's, shall we say, well-known vanity in order to get what they to want. man likes to have his name on the side of buildings, is what we're saying. And not just his name, it's face. Yeah, in his the case face. Of Saudi Arabia. <laughs> yeah, his face. Yeah, they, when he visited Riyadh, Saudi Arabia literally put his face on a wall of the hotel that he was staying in. He loved it. But like other countries have done this too, right? It shows that Trump is kind of easily manipulable, even if he can be a pain in certain circumstances. Absolutely. I mean, countries, intelligence agencies spend so much time just to understand the measure of the American president, like what makes them tick, uh, how, you know, sort of leverages that they can make. Trump's easy, right? Just make him feel good. Just, just flatter him. Saudi Arabia did that by putting literally his face on a hotel. China let him see the forbidden city with everyone else out. That clearly hasn't worked, as we talked about earlier. But it is certainly a way to get to Trump. And with the president saying, it'd be great if your name was on this this fort, this base, which obviously will end up being called like joint military base, whatever. It's it's a mass, as you mentioned, Zach, it's a masterstroke. It's a brilliant play. And if Duda went in there wanting Trump to more seriously consider authorizing that base, I think he succeeded. Yeah, I don't think he could have played it better. Than yeah, he I did. agree. And, you know, still, I just want to say, like, despite all of like the really important geopolitical concerns. And again, there are many that we've outlined. I just want to step back and think about the fact that there could very possibly be a fucking Fort Trump in the world. Fort Trump! (laughs) Like, just try to explain that to yourself 10 years ago. It'd be like, one day there's going to be a really important strategic U.S. military installation permanently in Poland to face off against Russia. And we named it Fort fucking Trump. Yeah, I can't wait to embed with troops at Fort Trump in the future. While we're talking about Fort Trump, I don't think we can top that. So I think we're gonna we're gonna close here. Uh, I want to thank our producer Bert Pinkerton and our social media manager Julie Bogan. Uh, I want to encourage all of you to rate, subscribe, review. So thank you very much. And with that, goodbye. <laughs>